when the baton was handed to them, they started pulling thousands of animals. They implemented new programs, rehabilitated animals, and started a Parvo puppy ward. And rather than export that to other communities, at some which they did initially, at some point, they became friends with the killers and their allegiance flipped. Hi and welcome. We're the Winograds. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jennifer. Today we're going to be talking about the last two Substack articles that Nathan published, articles that unfortunately dovetail quite nicely with one another. One is called The Co-Optation of Austin Pets Alive, and it talks about how that organization has abandoned their no-kill advocacy and is now actively working against no-kill across the country by giving shelters very bad, very harmful advice. To the point that they are defending abusive shelter yeah, to the Yeah, not just that they're giving bad advice, but they're actually propping up shelter directors that are being accused of animal cruelty. And then um, secondly, an article that came out recently in the Seattle Times about what's going on at the Seattle Humane Society and the broken promises there regarding no-kill. And their claim that in breaking those promises, they are following the advice of Austin, Austin Pets, Pets Alive. Alive. Once you go to L.A., you're going to have friends like crazy, but they're going to be fake friends. You know, they're going to try to corrupt you. These people are not your friends. You know, these are people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars, and they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. Hey, you have to make your reputation on being honest and... Uh, Unmerciful. You published a piece about the co-option of Austin Pets Alive. And then this week, further proof that Austin Pets Alive is giving really bad advice comes out in this pretty stunning expose in the Seattle Times about what happened with the Seattle Humane Society. You know, from 2015 to 2018, Seattle Humane undertook a capital campaign to raise at the time that I guess they were looking for $25 million. Right. And they ended up raising $30 million by promising the residents of their community that, that if they gave them the money that they would save 60% more animals and pull those animals from death row at high kill shelters. Right. So basically what what Seattle Humane was doing was riding the wave of no kill reform across the country where citizens in their towns and animal lovers are demanding greater life saving in their community. Well, not only that, not only were they riding the wave of no-kill reform that was happening across the country, but they also tapped in in what the American public wanted. I mean, people well, have I mean, always wanted. That's true. I would say no-kill reform is a reflection of what people want, which is they want their shelters to be shelters for animals and not right. places where animals go to and, die. And if you ask them to give money to save more lives, if you ask them to give money to save dogs and cats that are literally on death row and threatened with the needle. If you tell them you're going to use the money and build a facility unlike any that has been seen in that area and that for animals, it will be this life-saving way stations to better lives. Of course, they're going to give money. In fact, they gave $5 million more than they asked for. 
then the shelter finally opened and those promises were not honored. They only saved one animal more than they, they did, did in before. The old and I think it's important. We have always argued that no-kill is more of a result of programs and services and not necessarily the facility. Correct. I mean, I I created the nation's first no-kill community in, a, in essentially a converted house. Yeah, someone had donated the house that became the shelter. And, that- and they built it out with kennels and cages, right? And we created no-kill in that environment. So but it shouldn't have required a new shelter to achieve that success. Even though you don't necessarily need a new facility to create no-kill, if you can do so and create uh, more capacity. Yeah, more space is always better. Yes, if if you can make it a more home-like environment for the animals and a more welcoming environment for the public, that is a good thing. And that's what they did. Uh, well, that's what they promised they were going to do, right? Like with this with facility. So it's not just the fact that they could have done no, no kill before, but they, they chose not to. The fact is that they made these very specific promises to the people that donated to them and about they, what would happen. Correct. And then they did not honor and, those promises. But, so they built a 50,000, I mean, just massive square foot shelter, three stories that the Seattle Times described had, quote, an adoption lobby with decorative orbs hanging from high ceilings, indoor kennels and adoption rooms, and a veterinary center with surgical suites, sterile recovery rooms, and a community clinic. That sounds beautiful. And And yet they only (laughs) increased the number of adoptions by by one one animal animal. from the old facility. And that was a good year because the next year... It was even less. It was 64% percent fewer, fewer animals. animals. So Seattle Humane makes these promises, opens the shelter, not only doesn't save more animals, it saves fewer. Right. And it wasn't just the fact that they weren't honoring those promises. It, that was one of um, many things that the people that were interviewed, 30 people were interviewed for this Seattle Times. Right, Time staff series. and volunteers and internal documents yeah, were reviewed by the two very investigative reporters. Very disgruntled people. Right. What did the Seattle Times say was to blame, and then what did the staff and employees report? Well, so based on those documents and the 30 interviews they did, they blamed it on the kind of corruption we've seen in our 30-plus years in this movement. Uncaring by Mm -hmm. the leadership of Seattle Humane, incompetence by the leadership of Seattle Humane, and also favoritism. They promoted their friends and people they liked to senior positions rather than making those... Uh, merit-based. Yeah, make, making those promotions Competence. merit-based, based on competence and metrics and the ability to get the job done. And it was a pretty compelling argument based on the evidence they provided in the piece. Having a high-profile capital campaign, then you do not honor the promises made by that. And then having the local newspaper in your town do a front-page expose or homepage expose about how you have failed to live up to the promises that you made, that is pretty stunning. Like It's especially stunning for two reasons. One, newspapers generally don't like to attack the local humane society. That's because, true. Because, I mean, over our 30 years, we've yeah, certainly learned because that. Because yeah. literally it's about dogs and cats and puppies and kittens and rabbits and hamsters. But it's also stunning because of how the newspaper industry has changed over the last couple of decades where you don't really see local newspapers do in-depth investigative pieces, the kind of which 
the Seattle Times did here. Yeah, I mean, that, to, that they interviewed so many people that they got do- internal documents, all those things. And also, like, they didn't just rely on sound bites or just parrot what Seattle Humane was saying to them, which is, you know, common. And they got it right. I mean, they made a very compelling case laying out the arguments with data to back it up. Yeah, and insiders speaking right. to them. I mean, you have to imagine the level of disgruntledness amongst for people uh, to come for forward people to come and that forward. many people to come yeah forward. that many people i mean it's it's pretty pretty stunning so anyway obviously the pressure that leadership at seattle humane was feeling from this piece that was published was big enough that they felt that they needed to make a public response so in doing so they gave three reasons why they were not honoring the commitment as to why they were going to save more animals what were those excuses well the first one was that They weren't serious about the goal of more adoptions. They basically said that goal was aspirational. And what is stunning about that is there's nothing wrong with creating goals that you feel are a reach for you. But anything that, you know, you want to challenge yourself to reach higher. But it's not like they, say, adopted out 40% more animals or 50% more animals and just fell shy of the goal of hitting 10,000 adoptions a year, 60% more animals than they did in the old facility. They did one. They did one, yeah. So basically they said we weren't serious. The second excuse they uh, gave was they don't have to do more because they're already great. They claimed we have a 99% save rate and that is kind of the highest tier of shelters across the country. Yeah, and there are several problems with that. First of all is... If you were already great, why did you make promises that you would be doing more? Why were you saying that there was a problem that needed addressing and you gave specific benchmarks of more animals that needed to be saved, but now you're claiming that you don't need to do that? That claim that that was necessary and proper is now you've abandoned that. So Correct. We're supposed it's to contradictory. Just, yeah, it doesn't make any it's sense. It's dishonest. But the second thing is talking about your save rate is not, nece- is not a, a good metric of how well you're doing if you are not compelled to take in a certain amount of animals because you have like a municipal contract or something like that, right? Right. So So, Seattle Humane is not a municipal shelter and they don't have a municipal contract. So they they can take in as many animals as they want or or as few. So, so right. So if they took in one animal and then didn't kill that animal, that would be a hundred percent save rate. Correct. And so the question is, did they take in the number of animals in comparison to other communities of its size. And actually, the Seattle Times reporters compared them, their massive size and their massive budget with surrounding shelters. That had a less, much Smaller budgets, budget. yeah. municipal contracts, so they were required to take in all the animals from their jurisdiction and smaller facilities who not just took in more animals per capita, but actually took in overall more animals and and, uh, and, yeah. pl- and had placement rates equal to that of C- Seattle Humane. So saying you have a 99% placement rate when you can not only pick and choose the animals you take in, but like they did the following year after placing one additional animal where they took in 64% fewer, mm-hmm. where they literally can keep the kennels empty which is exactly what Seattle Humane did. Exactly. So it doesn't measure, in in a situation where you have a very large, very wealthy shelter that isn't taking in that many animals, animals, but animals may be dying in other places. Animals then, that they promise to save. Promise that they save. It's, it's, save rate does not measure loss potential. Correct. At all. And there is enormous loss potential there. Correct. I mean, loss potential that they 
even were claiming was the reason they needed more money to begin with. Absolutely. And on top of that, the Seattle Times reporters compared the internal documents, which showed how many animals they killed. So they weren't even honest about what their favorite was. Versus how many animals Seattle Humane publicly said they killed. And there was a significant disconnect. So the internal documents showed that they killed a lot more animals than they publicly reported a discrepancy that Seattle Humane blamed on a computer glitch. They said it was improper coding. All right. And then the third excuse that they they gave. The most stunning one of all. The most stunning one of all. But it's actually fascinating from a perspective of what we just reported in your other Substack piece. They dovetail, unfortunately, very nicely, is that that the animal that that saving lives is passé. Right, that we no longer want to save lives. Yeah, that the, the <laughs> I believe the words they used was the animal welfare landscape has changed. Yes, so they claimed that they don't have to save more lives, they don't want to save more lives, and in fact saving lives is no longer a goal of the movement because quote the landscape of animal welfare has changed recently. And in explaining what they meant by that, they quoted the, the policies of, that, that are being pushed by groups that we actually warned about. Right. So the so National the Animal Control Association, which has always been terrible. Always been terrible. Uh, you know, they are an industry association with a mission to protect the people in shelters that kill animals. Instead of the animals they're, they're themselves. They're a lobbying organization for shelter directors. For animal, for sh- and for, animal control officers. For kill shelters. They're essentially a union for poorly performing employees. They also quoted Best Friends Animal Society, which we've been warning about their corruption for a number of years now. And they cited Austin Pets Alive, who we released an article last week on Substack warning about their corruption. Right. So... So basically, given that they cited these organizations, and we know that these organizations, like Best Friends, has a, a program called Community Sheltering, which is their, that they're pushing. And you want to explain what Community Sheltering is? And you can then also explain what APA's program is as well, that both of these programs are encouraging shelters to take in fewer animals, to turn animals away, and, and in many cases, just to abandon animals, including kittens on the street. Sure. So we know that NACA has always promoted Regressive policies that favor killing. They've made no secret of that. Exactly. They've been opposed to no-kill from the very beginning. But Best Friends and Austin Pets Alive at one point publicly championed no-kill, and Best Friends still has a campaign they call Save Them All, where people donate to the tune of $90 million a year, and they promise, as they have in an endless succession of five-year plans, that we're going to be no-kill in five years. If you just give best friends more money. Correct. And they and every five years when they fail to reach the goal, they launch it all over again and memories are short and the goal sounds wonderful and so people donate. And it should be pointed out that those goals are not unachievable. That goal of a no-kill nation is not unachievable. But the way that you achieve that is by promoting a very specific model that has been proven over and over and over again to succeed. And that is not what these groups are, they're not doing that anymore. Right. It so is, it isn't as if, ha, well, they're promising the world, then it's not possible. It's that they're promising this goal without making sure that the things that we need to do as a society to get there 
are being implemented. In fact, if anything now, based on what you know what we're talking about now, they're going backwards. Right. And the tragedy here is that the model that actually would get us to a no-kill nation has proven it successful in the hundreds of communities that have actually implemented it and achieve placement rates higher than 95% and as high as 99% in municipal shelters or shelters with municipal contracts. So we have no-kill communities across the country, and if they were to either promote that model or force communities to implement that model, we could be a no-kill nation today. Absolutely. And if if Seattle Humane was at any point inclined to defer to the quote-unquote expertise of people at Austin Pets Alive, the information they're getting from Austin Pets Alive has nothing to do with how Austin ever became successful in the first place, which is actually an important conversation to have because there was a time when Austin Pets Alive was telling people, well, we replace killing with alternatives. The, right? the programs of the no-kill the equation that we've no been championing equation. and that have been responsible for success across the country. Right. And it's not like the leadership of Seattle Humane weren't aware of those programs. I had gone up to Seattle a couple of times and given presentation where people connected to Seattle Humane were present. I was actually recruited by Seattle Humane and asked, how can we become a national model? And I laid out that program's approach, which they decided they did not want. And I wrote a letter to the chair of the board of directors saying, with the new shelter, with the amount of money that you've been given by the community, and with the passion for saving lives that clearly the community has, Seattle Humane, if it follows this model, is poised to create by population the largest no-kill community in the United States. So it's not like they this would have been foreign to them. They were well aware, but decided to go in a different direction. A different direction that is in much easier direction, like the direction of you can claim that you're successful if you follow this model that we're promoting, like Best Friends and AAPA, even though you're not there's, you're not doing anything. You're not doing anything. Right. So right? The, they you're raise. Doing, in fact, you're doing less. Yes, they raise money promising to do more, and they and did, they had, did oh, less. So sad because they have like they they could be poised for greatness. Right. Like the the money they have, the facility they have, they could do amazing things, and they've chosen to do even less. Right. So the question is why when they look to organizations like Austin Pets Alive, which was on the ground when Austin transitioned from a high-kill jurisdiction to a 98% placement rate jurisdiction. They knew how that happened. They were there. They know the programs and services that made that achievement possible. But instead, Austin Pets Alive is now excusing killing, is now defending the killers, is now telling shelters to literally close the door and turn the animals away to yeah, the point fact, that they're telling people to release them on the street. Yeah, there is a video that you have on the the article of the co-option of Austin Pets Alive. Where and you, this article. And this article as well, where you actually, you can see a shelter worker telling a person who has brought a dog to the, they to found, the shelter that they found to just go and release the dog back on the street. Right, that they're and, not taking in healthy animals. Right. And, and that actually came as a result of the pandemic. So when the pandemic hit in 2020, shelters basically broke out into two camps. There was one camp where shelters realized that they were an essential service 
and that the pandemic should not mean that they no longer live up to the debt and the duty we owe animals, right? And so those shelters stayed open and they found creative and innovative ways to get people to see the animals, to quote unquote, meet the animals online and through videos and to adopt out the animals. And these shelters actually were cleared out during the pandemic, people were at home, adoptions skyrocketed. Skyrocketed. Yeah, it, was a, it was a big new it was a big story of the pandemic. Correct. The and these shelters found themselves doing more adoptions than they had ever done. And in fact, some of them became empty the good way for the first time in their history. Then there were the second camp of shelters that completely neglected the duty that they owed animals and they literally closed their doors. Communities like, for example, the city of Los Angeles, which not only shut the doors to the point where if people called, you know, there's one case where somebody found a blind dog and staff at the city of Los Angeles pound told them to release a blind dog back on the street. Same thing happened in, in Utah where a couple came across a blind cat in walking circles. in circles, lost. Yeah. And they called the shelter and said, what do we do? And they, they were told they're not taking in animals to just leave the animal there. And in the city of Los Angeles, people were literally abandoning the animals in the shelter parking lot. And the No-Kill Advocacy Center worked with one rescuer who was trying to trap one of the cats that was abandoned in the parking lot. And animal control officers told her, you need a permit to trap. We're not giving you a permit. And if you try to trap or feed the cat, we're going to drag you into court. We're going to cite you Jesus. for trapping yeah. without a license. I mean, that's how bad some of the shelters were. But when the pandemic is over, despite closing their doors, despite telling people to release blind dogs on the sidewalk, despite allowing cats to sit in the parking lot without food and water and threatening people that wanted to care for them with citation because they weren't taking in animals, and because they weren't taking in animals, they weren't killing animals, they announced that they achieved no-kill for the first time in their history. And best friends seized on that. And Austin Pets Alive seized on that. And they decided that when the pandemic was over, that they were going to make these changes permanent. And by changes, I mean not take in animals, do less for animals, and report high placement rates. Exactly what Seattle Humane Society did exactly what the city of Los Angeles did, and exactly how Best Friends, I believe, corruptly expects to achieve no-kill by 2025. By just simply not promised. taking in the animals. Correct. You know, and, and, and not just not know, taking them in, abandoning them, abandoning including them. kittens. And kittens. I mean, in San Francisco, the San Francisco shelter is telling people who find abandoned kittens on the street, on the sidewalk, to leave them there. The question, of course, is why? Why would organizations go from championing no-kill, fighting for the rights of animals, to pursuing policies that call for abandoning kittens on the street? Money. At least one of the answers is money. Yeah, and so there is a very specific reason why organizations that start out and might be sort of revolutionary in their aims and very scrappy, but then get a lot of support because there's a lot of public sentiment behind what they're advocating, why those organizations, once they start to get a lot of money, start to abandon that cause for stability. Well, yes, they become much more conservative and much more risk averse. And the focus shifts from challenging the status quo 
to maintaining membership lists, to maintaining revenue streams. And in fact, the mission actually becomes fundraising as opposed to what they were initially raising the money for, which was challenging the status quo of how animals are harmed in various ways and rectifying that. And I, th- I think in the animal movement, and, and you know, this may be true of other movements as well, but the, but the fact that there are organizations in the animal welfare field that are so tremendously wealthy that give grants to other organizations also has a very stifling effect on organizations that were once revolutionary in their aims because these organizations with a lot of money that get, you know, control vast sums come to them and with promises of giving them money and helping make them wealthy. I mean, that's true of APA, right? You're absolutely right. There was a time when there were a large number of foundations and organizations that gave grants to animal welfare causes. Some of them might have been revolutionary, but they, but since there were so many, they were just very diverse in, in their point of view. And what we have seen over the years is a lot of consolidation in grant making to animal organizations and in fact all the grant all the major grant givers organizations and foundations coalesced around an umbrella called the animal grant makers and many of those foundations actually ended up giving authority for who gets their grants to that organization and large organizations like the Humane Society of the United States. So unless you follow the model of these large organizations, which in the animal grant makers are basically made up of groups like HSUS, ASPCA, Maddie's Fund, and very, very status quo oriented and and in some cases, really historically regressive conservative organizations, you can't get a grant. So if you're an organization like APA that now relies on a $10 million a year income stream, and that income stream is reliant on so grants. So you've grown in proportion to the money that you have come to rely on, like your Correct. facilities, your staff. Correct. You have, you have fixed needs. And so- right. And so in order to maintain that revenue stream, you have to be a good soldier. You have to not say anything that's going to upset the status quo. And initially, you say to yourself, well, if I get this million dollars from Maddie's fund and I have to compromise my ethics, compromise the way I talk, or sacrifice helping advocates in other communities do what occurred in Austin and the killing in their community, I'm going to do that because I can use the money that I'm giving for these other things and that'll help animals too. But once you start going down that road and once you become reliant on that money and once you become friends with the people who initially and should continue to be the targets of your advocacy because of the harm, the active and ongoing harm they represent to animals, physical abuse, neglect, killing in the face of alternatives, then it becomes kind of a death by a thousand cuts. You justify it to yourself. Well, I'm not going to attack the hypocrisy of best friends publicly, or I'm not going to help these advocates in this other community and the killing there because I can use this million dollars to help animals in my community. But pretty soon you come out on the other side and you are the status quo and, and you are and now regressive. suddenly you're defending Physi- gross, gross physical, physical abuse, abuse of animals of, in Philadelphia. Yes, yeah. and in other places. Right. And excusing violence towards animals. So you become 
that which you once opposed, and you become the ongoing threat to animals. These organizations probably would be shocked to learn how often when those people that you knew that you helped their organization get to the success that they had, that meant that best friends came knocking or Maddie's fun or whatever, that there is that tension, that moment where they have to shed that skin of who they used to be and that they resent that. And that you frequently would get calls from people complaining about these organizations and expecting you to be their hatchet man. Yes, yeah, saying we want to take their money and so we can no longer advocate the way we for animals the way they we don't used want to. us to say this we can't talk about this would you do it on our would behalf you, and, and so and i think one of the most galling things is to see all these people expecting you to be the courageous one you to be the one that speaks the truth so and that then, they can get the money so that they can get the money i think that was the first cut when i call it death by a thousand cuts because while there was initial tension and they knew that accepting that money with the terms that were attached with it meant that they had to sacrifice advocacy for animals or even sacrifice animals that over time it became easier and easier until the tension disappeared because it all it became all about the money and it became all about the limelight and the power that came with associating with a group like Best Friends or the Humane Society of the United States or Maddie's Front until they are no longer recognizable to their old ideal selves. Yeah, I mean, if you, I think the stunning thing about the statement by Seattle Humane that the landscape has changed is Seattle Humane's confusion that what the leaders of some very large, wealthy organizations a now small believe, group, right? A, a handful of people that what they believe is what is true of Americans in general, or what the rest of us should be doing. So, well, like, just because. Right, the, just because the, their quote unquote experts don't care about no kill anymore and don't care if animals are abandoned on the street. Because they become corrupted. Because so, they become corrupted. So they cite these small number of corrupt organizations that have become complacent with the status quo, that defend killing and defend the killers, and want to claim that their pronouncement mean the landscape of animal welfare has changed, and therefore the goals and desires of the nation of rescuers, of volunteers, of staff, of donors, and of your average American dog and cat animal lover believes. You know, and what what it reminds me of is the the hubris of these organizations that think that they can dictate how the rest of us are supposed to think about animals in that regard. Like, do you remember when this was this is a very old war story, but maybe it was 20 years ago. Someone reported back to us that they went to a meeting after these things that came out called the Asilomar Accords that were supposed to like kind of put the kibosh on Well, on, let me no explain. Kill. Yeah. Before you finish, let me t explain what the Asilomar Accords were. So no kill was coming into its own and actually had become a real threat to the status quo of killing that was epitomized by organizations like the Humane Society of the United States, the ASPCA, the American Humane Association. And they met in Asilomar, California to address the threat that no-kill represented. And they decided that the term no-kill was divisive and should not be used anymore. 
Right. And they all they all signed this these accords and then they went around telling everybody else that this was how it was going to be now and everyone had to obey this. And, and talk right, about that. Meeting. So yeah, there was a meeting. I remember someone reporting back to you that a woman asked a question and in that she used the term no kill. Of the vice president for companion animals at HSUS. Okay. And she asked this question using the term no kill and the woman actually said, You're not allowed to use that those words anymore. This yeah, you couldn't we, say you no can't, kill. We, we decided. We decided that you can't use the term no kill anymore. And I remember just, I know you and I, we were just, just. I mean, these groups never stopped shocking us about their hubris, that their own self-importance, right. like, that they somehow thought that they could get a meeting together, all declare that the, that the war was over, they had basically won, and that we all needed to, on, on the terms of sur- our surrender, we needed to surrender our language, our values, our goals. The animals themselves. Well, yeah, all those oriented around saving the animals that that they were all killing. So this reminds me of that. Like this is, and it's scary in that way that it really does harken back to that moment for me that now we have this new slate of groups thinking that they they are now have been elevated to the position that those other groups once where held, they can dictate where they suddenly think that they're yeah. what people should believe yeah so they're telling so rescuers and animal lovers and volunteers at shelters and and for the purposes of Seattle humane the, the all the people that were interviewed in there in the newspaper everyone well hey, hey little people Right. The goals have changed. Well, the, the the deal there is that the landscape of animal welfare hasn't changed. They have changed. Right. And I think nothing is more stunning as an example than the article that Austin Pets Alive recently published called The Human Face of Animal Shelter Euthanasia, where they actually resurrected arguments that were from the 1970s that even groups like HSUS and ASPCA don't claim to believe anymore, saying basically that killing is a kindness, that people who kill animals love them, and irrespective of whether they put in place the programs that would eliminate the need to kill. So they don't even have to do that. And that criticizing them is unfair. And that, in fact, in that piece, they said asking shelters to do more, to save more animals is unfair because the more animals a shelter keeps alive, the higher the sheltered workers have to work and therefore the higher the stress they have. And so it's unfair because it leads to burnout of staff. That, I mean, yeah, stunning. Stunning. And, and just such a, a revival of all these ideas that we had just Thought had been debunked I mean, decades ago. So, so re- you're really saying because the shelter workers have to work harder if the animals are alive that's the rather job. than dead? My God. So the argument they made is that saving lives harms shelter workers, but killing animals harms animals. They die. I think that that's what's so tragic about all of this of, of late, that, that the discussion is of the animals is, is completely lost in that. There's been a pivot and it it is very reminiscent of the, you and I have a name for it. It's, um, we always call it a dog and cat calendar, dog and kitten calendar, animal activism, right? Like the, the kind of animal activism that distinguished ASPCA, HSUS for years when we were growing up, you'd get those calendars with the kittens and the puppies and they and would they fundraise off that, but right. they don't do anything. Right, right. so right. essentially like Seattle Humane, raise money, 
promise the moon and put out calendars. Right. And the animals are not even a part of like really a discussion other than, oh, they're so cute, you know. And, and, and Best Friends has become a master at that, you know, promising to, quote, save them all. At the same time, they are... Telling shelters, close your doors. Close your doors. Go dark. Close your doors, and then you can claim that you're successful. And then our claim that we're fostering no-kill across the country looks even better because So everybody raises money, and the only people that lose are the rescuers, the volunteers, and, of course, the animals lose their lives or don't get the help they need. I I think Uh, that where the animals and what is in their best interest is completely taken out of the equation, whereas these groups, like some of these groups, like the, you know, APA, where they used to be focused on what was in the best interest of animals, few things reveal the extent to which that isn't even on their mind anymore than the recording that Kristen Hassan did. She's a director at APA. She runs their national programs. Where she had a recent Zoom call, and I'm I'm going to, you'll discuss, obviously you should discuss that, but I mean, it was about an issue in response to animal cruelty and she defended the abuser she not only defended the abuser but what happened to the dogs in that instance didn't even come up right like it was just like the poor director that oversaw this abuse and is being investigated by the dog warden right had to resign oh poor her whereas the dog that got his jaw broken or the dogs that were found to be living in filth in in the kennels overseen by the shelter director literally she didn't even bring up the dogs like they weren't even mentioned they weren't even a ghost of a thought in her mind and the Zoom call you're talking about stemmed from a dog being taken in by the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania pound. And a staff member at that pound assaulted the dog and broke the dog's jaw. The dog was put in a kennel with a jaw that was so badly broken he couldn't even close his mouth. They didn't provide him any veterinary care. And the director, knowing that the family was coming to get the dog, ordered the dog killed and left they the were, family in tatters. Oh, they yeah, were. The woman was screaming and crying in the lobby of the pound. Uh, you know, like um, he died alone, you know, basically. And like, he died. I mean, he didn't have to die. He had a broken jaw. They could have fixed that. Well, first of all, staff members shouldn't be breaking dogs. Yeah, dogs. Why, yeah. Shelter directors shouldn't be covering up that abuse and then killing a dog knowing that the family's coming to get the dog. And so that led, according to the family, to a criminal investigation by the district attorney. And the shelter director went on television and said, we made mistakes, it, it, we're, we're, we're going to do better. And yet about a month later, the state does a an investigation of conditions at the shelter. And what started out as a routine inspection became the second criminal referral in as many months. And the dog warden found dogs in need of immediate veterinary care. He found extensive filth and feces. And in a rare action that only happens in the most extreme cases, ordered the shelter to provide immediate care and then referred the case for animal cruelty charges. And there was this massive public outcry and the shelter's director and her hand-picked manager resigned. And these are people that came from the New York City pound, also notorious for neglect, abuse, and rampant killing. And Austin Pets Alive, Kristen Hassan at Austin Pets Alive, didn't come to the defense of the dogs. 
she came to the defense of the shelter director and the manager. And in well, the, the first thing that she did regarding that was the when there was the expose on it by the New Jersey. So, yeah. So uh, dog lovers around the country started complaining about this director and she criticized shelter reform advocates saying that they were doing more harm than good and that it's such a difficult time for shelter workers and you know, right? it, it, now that you again, shouldn't criticize These them. are exactly textbook examples of the way that no kill advocates you know challenged for the last 20 years like not only that but in this austin is, yes in this austin. is exactly yes what you, the you, aspca you do, you're doing more harm than good you're divisive we should, we all need to work together we all need to get along meanwhile there's a devastated family the woman that they're defending is still at that time was still in charge and right? abused, she had not yet resigned. abused and and a dog turned to ash Yes. After being horrifically and then, assaulted. And then an investigation that found like extensive, extensive filth and animal suffering of animals who needed immediate veterinary care. Right. And and Kristen's worried and about how hard shelter how, workers yeah, have and, it. And tells people that are criticizing, stop criticizing that. Stop criticizing. Right. Exactly. Because that was that was the first thing Kristen did. Then Correct. then then but it got even worse because yes. once the the shelter director and resigned. her re- resigned, she had them on a Zoom call. She brought these not only those two shelter directors where she heaped praise on them and never once mentioned what they put the dogs through. Yeah, I mean the dogs they didn't come up at all. Right. But she asked the director of the Memphis Pound to chair a committee that would prevent what happened in Philadelphia from happening again. And by prevent, she didn't happened? mean the animal cruelty. She didn't mean the animal cruelty or no. or the killing of the dog or the physical assault of the dog or dogs languishing in filth or not getting prompt and necessary veterinary care when they're suffering. She meant people criticizing those things. And a shelter director losing their job because of that. She wanted to prevent that from happening again. And that is also reminiscent of a game plan that the ASPCA launched and the pound launched against Austin Pets Alive and other no-kill advocates in Austin when they were complaining about neglect, abuse, and needless killing at that pound. Okay. They literally were borrowing the playbook, the playbook. That from was the used, ASPCA yeah, that against. was used against them and us in Austin and are applying it to other communities that wanted to achieve the same kind of success that Austin once had. And she asked the chair of the Memphis Pound, who in a recent article was criticized because one, she has a high number of animals dying in their cages. And two, the medical records, which would explain why all those animals are dying in their cages and which she is required by law under Public Records Act, Freedom of Information Law, to release to citizens who request them. She's refusing to release them in violation of law. And she is threatening rescuers who want to save the animals she plans on killing or she is threatening to kill. Mm -hmm. That if they criticize the shelter publicly, she won't let them help animals, which itself is illegal, a violation of their First Amendment rights in federal law. Yes. So these are the people that Kristen had um, assembled to defend this abusive shelter director in Philadelphia. These are her new colleagues. If you could get in a time machine and go back in five years. 
Can you and yeah, tell her? And say at some point. At some point in the future, you are going to be defending a shelter director who knew that their employee broke a dog's jaw, left the dog, dog without veterinary care, knew the family was coming for the dog, then killed the dog, reduced him to ash, and then was investigated by the dog warden in Pennsylvania and found to have animals that were in immediate need of veterinary care. like And refer the case cruelty. for cruelty charges. Uh, and you would you would defend that person. And not, not only defend, the dogs. Yeah, and not and only then, defend that person. Right. But impanel a committee to prevent advocates from holding similar abusive directors accountable going forward. Yeah, I think that it would have been, she wouldn't have believed it. She wouldn't have. But when Austin Pets Alive got large enough and was courted, the people associated with Austin Pets Alive, like Kristen, were courted to speak at the Humane Society of the United States Conference or invited to join the board of the National Animal Control Association. She She established relationships with the people associated with it, with them. And rather than getting them to, to, change, ad- to adopt right. the mission of no kill, she began to identify with them rather than the cause and so, or the animals. Yeah, and you have an interesting article that you linked to in your Substack piece about this, that this is one of the threats that social movements face is co-optation. And that happens when one group's trying to change another group, they get... Well, when, invited in right, with, when they with try the promise to re- it's not that so much, changes from the inside. Right. It's not so much changing one group. It's reform a corrupt movement. They enter the corridors of power and they like it. And rather than reform the movement, they become corrupted and they identify more with the perpetrators of animal violence. Yeah, I think another other tweet by um, Kristen Hassan, who obviously, you know, joining NACA and then inviting some kill shelter directors to sit on their to sit on the APA advisory board, you know, advisory boards was the Facebook post that she did where when Detroit announced that they were going to kill 50 dogs, you know, rather than put that killing into the context for other people about what programs does Detroit not have that would be an alternative to killing those animals and how this killing is a choice they because of a failure of them to to do to implement the programs and services right, that, that would, would prevent that the and, and we're saving that if those dogs had entered a shelter in a different community that did have those programs and at in one place, time in austin itself and at one time in austin then they would have been saved rather than that she she lamented that it was a hard choice for that shelter director yeah, that she, her heart in, went out to her instead of saying imagine what it's like to be a dog in a shelter and someone's going to come down the road point at you, you're going to be taken to a back room and put to death. She said, imagine what it's like to be the shelter director and what they have to go through in terms of choosing 49 dogs to to be put to death. A shelter director that in hundreds of other communities wouldn't do that because they've implemented the programs and services that obviate the the quote-unquote need to kill. A stunning turnaround. At an organization that was once part of the vanguard of No Kill in Austin. But those are not the only things that she's done. You want to give some more examples of ways that... Yeah. So not only did she defend a shelter director that willfully covered up a crime in Philadelphia, the, the assault by one of her staff members of a dog and then ordered that dog killed, but APA has also featured other abusive shelter directors at their conference. In 2020, one of the speakers at the conference was the shelter director from El Paso, Texas, who was so neglectful that on one occasion, dogs literally froze to death. And on another occasion, they 
were cannibalized. And the photographs of what occurred, there's one where a dead puppy is literally covered in blood with his forelimb gnawed to the bone. And also the same kind of neglect and abuse that led to the deaths of cats. And even though shelter reform advocates begged her not, not to, to promote this that person. person. She went ahead and did it. She anyway, was a featured right? speaker at their 2020 conference. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, she is promoting books and journal articles that have taken some of the most regressive anti-animal positions imaginable. That advocate keeping dogs on chains 24-7, that defend dog fighters like Michael Vick, that call for more animals to be killed in pounds, that defend backyard breeding, and that defend the harpooning of whales and the clubbing of seals. No, I mean, I think that last one is, I mean, it's so shocking in terms of, uh, again, how much progress has been made. All decent people that we right. shouldn't club seals and harpoon whales and leave dogs on chains and and accept dog fighting. But she's literally that promoting. That is what is coming out of the leadership of it, APA now. I, I think it's interesting for you to point out, you're, we've talked a lot about Kristen, who is one of the directors of APA and how she's taking this organization in such a dangerous direction. Like it's usually the, the common denominator now with all the things that are happening that are so disturbing at APA is Kristen Hassan. But you actually have a re- have a relationship with Kristen and you had worked with her on some positive things in the past. Yeah. So I, it makes her about face all the more I'd say bewildering, but all the more tragic. tragic. Yeah, Yeah. tragic. I mean, I wrote a behavior protocol for her to implement at Austin Animal Center. I helped revamp their policies and procedures that reduced length of stay and increased the number of animals who were placed at Austin Animal Center when she was the deputy director. And um, I offered to rewrite all the animal codes in Pima County uh, in Arizona when she went there from Austin. I've helped her in in so many ways, which, you know, I take no pleasure in telling people who and what she has become and who and what she promotes now. It's sad because it makes it, it's one of those things where it makes it all the more heartbreaking because you, they, they at one point at least seem to see the light when people that have a, a history like that suddenly abandon it because you, you it, it's like you, you know better. What are she you doing? Knows. She knows. She knows. So, yeah. So the question, of course, is what advice should have Austin Pets Alive given Seattle Humane? If Seattle Humane turned to look at what does Austin Pets Alive say about what we should do Yeah, if they with knew about, if they were familiar with the success that occurred in Austin and Austin Pets Alive wanted to help them recreate that success. What would they have what said? What would they have said? And I think we need to explain how Austin went from a, a community that was killing more than six out of 10 animals to one that at its height had a 98% placement rate. Okay. Well, I mean, we're intimately familiar with that story because you helped create No Kill in Austin. You yes. Helped, you were a part of that. In a- fact, and viciously attacked by the organizations she now embraces. Let's give some historical context in terms of time. Like how long ago are we talking about? When did when did the, the movement for No Kill in Austin begin? So around- And it should be noted that Kristen was not there at that yes, time. Yes. Kristen was yeah. not there. She was not involved in Austin's transition to No, no she Kill. She came in after it was already successful. Right. And- So around the time that Redemption, my first book was published, back around 2008, somewhere around then, I went all around the country 
<laughs> but I want to take a quick step back. How you got on the radar of people in Austin was the work that we had done in promoting the no-kill equation, which was the model that you championed when you created the first no-kill community in, in upstate New York. And it was our goal to spread that to every shelter in the country, right? Right. And so you went to do that. You wrote a book, Redemption, and you told that story. And the story of the success, the initial success in San Francisco and how it became the then... When you worked at the San Francisco SPCA. Yes, how it became the then safest... It wasn't no-kill, but it was the then safest urban community in the United States. Right. They were experimenting with a lot of the alternatives that are now very commonplace, but that at that time were controversial. Right. And, and we took the programs pioneered in San Francisco to a municipal shelter in New York and created the first full-service, open admission, no-kill no community in the United States. And we took in not just dogs and cats, but rabbits and mice and guinea pigs and even the occasional horse, chicken, cow, And at that pig. time, it was an unprecedented achievement. And you were speaking at Best Friends conferences at that time, and they even did an article called Diary of a No-Kill Shelter Director, where they announced that this was actually the nation's first no-kill community. community and, and how it was achieved. And how it was achieved, which was a simple three-step process. Do you want to stop, stop the, the killing, killing? Stop, stop the, the killing, killing. Stop the killing. Of right. course, it also... They would never publish something like that correct, now, ever. Ever. And of course, there were a series of programs and services that we've come to call the No-Kill Equation. And that was listed in a sidebar uh, to that article. Yeah, how do you do it? So I wrote Redemption to promote that, the story of San Francisco, the story of Tompkins, the story of a few communities also that followed in those footsteps, utilizing that model and went around the country to 30 plus cities to tell that story. uh, And That was a great time. I mean, let's just... A little diversion there, like that our whole family went. Our kids were little. We went across the country. To some of those cities, yeah, we, right. That, that was before social media. So what we did was we reached out to Rescuers rescue groups or local the, shelters. Yeah, to, and because we, we wanted to get to hit a lot of big cities throughout the country. And, and we reached out to them and said, would you be interested in hosting a, a talk about a, a book, on a book tour, uh, a multimedia presentation um, by Nathan? And we'll come and, and we'll bring books and you just provide the venue and, and that would be And great. we'll hand the books out for yeah. free to and, anybody and who shows up. And so many up. people were familiar with you because of the work that you did at the SPCA in San Francisco. which and I Tompkins. Thought, and then Tompkins. And then you were, you were at Best Friends Conferences, right? right? They, uh, they had you. Yeah. Assist- and one of the cities that I went to on that book tour was Houston. And people from the Austin community came to hear who were very disgruntled with their correct. local shelter, which and was killing came a lot came to of hear animals. what I had to say. And that started a decades-long relationship where I was intimately involved in helping Austin fight the entrenched status quo, get rid of their regressive shelter director. I mean, this woman was so bad. She killed over 100,000 animals in her career and actually once complained because local animal lovers were tired of the killing so that they would go into the shelter and they would take pictures of the animals and they would actually pay for advertisements in the local newspaper saying these animals are available for adoption and the community would respond and they would call the shelter and the shelter director actually complained about those ads saying so many people were calling to adopt the animal that the staff 
in having to answer those phone calls, couldn't do other things. And by other things, kill she animals. had to mean be in the back room to kill animals. Well, I mean, I mean that's that, how bad the shelter was. I get that. But that's also very reminiscent of that article that APA recently released, which is when you expect shelter employees to save animals, they have to work harder. Right. So, I mean, fair. that's the thing. These of arguments that Austin, in the dark days of mass killing we're making, APA is now parroting. To other communities, and, and you know, ironically, about other communities that you were you were giving them the answers. You, you, no matter you knew, we knew at the time that what the playbook was of these groups, and that was the thing that we really wanted to help arm activists with the knowledge they needed to counter these really regressive ideas that had dominated that movement. Correct, animal and sheltering for de- for a very long time. And I must have gone to Austin three, maybe four times. I've done consulting with the shelter there. I helped write some of their policies and procedures. I met with and lobbied the city council. I've written legislation that has been passed in the city of of Austin. And yeah, some of the most progressive animal welfare legislation in, in the so country. Correct. So I've been intimately, in, in fact, so intimately involved with creating No Kill in Austin that the mayor and city council issued a proclamation dedicating a day in August as Nathan Winograd Day in the city of Austin. Yeah. So I think it's important to point out that, I mean, I mean it we makes, can talk about this, but as if it's this is it. In, it's not it, arm's it's not, length, right? Yeah, it's not arm's it length. Makes and it I don't even want to more, say it's personal because it is. But it is, makes it more painful because we saw what yeah. it took to achieve no oh, kill. We saw how it achieved no kill. Uh-huh. We saw what it achieved and how they're and throwing they it too. all away. Yeah, and, and they now they're too. throwing it and all away. So and it's not like, only are they throwing it away in Austin, yeah. but they're, now they're, telling they're other discouraging shelter. other communities from doing the same, achieving the success they they achieved. And they're even fighting advocates who are trying to achieve success in their own communities with the playbook once used against them. Yeah, it's so tragic. Devastating. It's devastating. Cruel. Vile. I, you know, what a betrayal. Like, I, I keep thinking about like the frustration that we shared and, and literally the, the pain of trying to work in a movement that is where your job is literally to hold the movement accountable to its professed values. And what it has already achieved. Yeah. Well, so in the bigger the bigger sense of thinking back to even all the struggles to get it to the point where we really did, I think, succeed in arming enough people with information to counter all these myths and rationalization. The killing is kindness. Nobody wants to kill. There's no other way. No kill puts animals in harm's way. All this all this stuff. All these debunked ideas and debunked. actually saving the lives of millions of and animals then, yeah. to the point where killing has been reduced by 90% from its high watermark and that commentators have called it the most single biggest success of the modern animal protection movement. I mean, we are on the verge of ending the killing altogether and they want to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And for what? I mean, that's that's what makes it especially painful. What are they willing to throw the actual lives of animals away for? And it's literally their social lives because- They know these people They now, know these people right? and they like them. So if you're on the board of NACA and you're, you want to promote the no-kill equation, but you now know the people- yeah, that the, are not doing it and right, killing the, people, the person in Detroit, for instance. Right, like, the people who also sit on the board with yeah, you right. 
are killing animals. How can you say that killing is wrong when your friend sitting next to you is doing it? Is doing it. And And the animals can't speak for themselves. They can't compete with the shelter director sitting next to you that's a killer. What what is I don't want to say it's worse because from the animals' perspective, they don't care what the motivation of the people are. They die, they die. That the it, the end result is the ultimate harm. But you know, in looking back when HSUS was saying no kill was impossible, these uh, the people who took on leadership positions at HSUS came from high kill rate shelters, and they took that mission to HSUS, which should have had a different mission. Again, it became a lobbying organization for kill for shelters. Kill shelters right. For the people who killed animals rather than the animals they killed, right? right? And they claimed they were one and the same when the person holding the needle and the animal receiving the needle have mutually exclusive interests. But it seems far worse coming from Austin Pets Alive because they actually experienced success. They actually know and have firsthand knowledge of what it took to get there. And Austin Pets Alive threw it away. It is truly a betrayal on the level of a Benedict Arnold. When it comes to best friends, I don't think they ever actually had the best interest of animals at heart. I don't think they ever wanted to work very hard to save them all. While they were out preaching how you achieve no-kill... They never achieved a no-kill community themselves. They would wait in the wings while advocates who begged them to help them were fighting these entrenched, regressive directors who chose to kill in the face of readily available cost-effective alternatives they refused to implement. And after those advocates achieved success, after they chased out the regressive directors, After they got the programs implemented, after they achieved no-kill, best friends would come in and try to take credit for their success. Always this level of say one thing, do another, kind of a duplicity. But Austin Pets Alive was involved in the fight for a no-kill. Yeah, I mean, they saw what I would argue that they weren't the lead organization. That was the attorneys and advocates that were actually doing the political work. But nonetheless, when the baton was handed to them, they started pulling thousands of animals from the Austin shelter. They implemented new programs. When Austin Animal Center, the pound, moved into a new facility, they moved into the old facility and pulled animals and rehabilitated animals and started a parvo puppy ward and uh, yeah, feline re- leukemia positive cat ward. Yeah, I remember I mean, in they the were beginning they were innovating. Things. Like they were innovating. And, 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 and rather they- than export that to other communities at some, which they did initially, at some point they became friends with the killers and their allegiance flipped. Oh man. You made friends with them. See, friendship is the booze they feed you. As they want you to get drunk and feeling like you belong. My advice to you, and I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. As I have said before, ours is a movement of values. And the ideals we champion, that animals have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that shelters should provide a new beginning instead of the end of the line, 
that staff of those shelters must live up to the debt and the duty they owe animals by providing guarantees of well-being, are not only timeless, they are bigger than any one person or organization. In fact, 30 years of standing for this cause have taught me many things, but none perhaps more important than this, that those who champion no-kill will come and go, that we may lose some soldiers in this battle to stop shelter killing, and some like APA might even turn coat, but others will take their place, and the fight will continue to a certain and hopefully not too distant victory. Indeed, we've already come so far. For more information on our books, visit NathanWinograd.com. If you are a no-kill advocate who needs help reforming your local pound, or you are a shelter director looking to improve placement rates, visit NoKillAdvocacyCenter.org. If you like this podcast and want to hear others, please subscribe on Substack. Substack.